0: There were a few who were reticent about that um, which actually uh, led to some very very ruptured friendships some of which continue to this day yeah I was never entirely clear on the circumstances of
1: what went down but I knew there was some bad blood there
2: he wasn't really able to keep up with his print bill which kept growing and growing you know you can't uh, dip
1: into an endless supply of uh, cash when you're you're taking something on that costs more money than you could possibly afford or
2: even imagine. Ron decided he didn't want to do that and, and left and started View Weekly. took the staff and all of the files and everything, and we were left with this sort of empty room.
3: They were keeping C alive to draw advertising dollars away from this newly formed competitor paper, View Weekly.
0: The rivalry was was like the only thing we cared about. And we were, we were soldiers in that ongoing, um, battle.
1: Yeah, well, that was, uh, that was, uh, that was messy.
4: For 26 years, two rival magazines existed as the alternative weekly press in one blue-collar Canadian prairie city. This is the story of View Weekly and Sea Magazine, two weekly papers that ran in Edmonton between 1992 and 2018. This is a bittersweet elegy and love letter to those papers. Their rise, glory days, notorious rivalry, and eventual decline. I'm Andrew Paul. I'm Fonda Mithrush.
5: I'm Paul Blinoff.
4: And this is a tale of two weeklies. On November 29th, 2018, the final issue of View Weekly hit the streets in Edmonton, Alberta. For 23 years, the free, alternative news and arts magazine was delivered to hundreds of locations throughout the city every Thursday. While there was an outpouring of sadness from the community when the magazine finally shuttered, no one was all that shocked. Print media's era of struggle began long before View Weekly's demise, and the magazine's shrinking page counts indicated that it too would soon end in closure, just as so many other publications like it. Calgary's weekly fast-forward closed in 2015, and even the grand example of alt-weeklies, The Village Voice, stopped printing a physical version in 2017 and shut down for good just a few months before VIEW in August 2018. Those final issues of VIEW were delivered by a small fleet of converted Japanese vans owned by father-son team Ron and Mike Garth, who distributed the paper until its very last week. Ron Garth
6: founded View in 1995 and eventually ceded ownership of the paper to another publisher in 2011, when both View Weekly and its rival, C Magazine, were bought out and merged under a single banner. View Weekly was Edmonton's longest-running alt-weekly, but not its first. Back in 1992, the city's original weekly was that rival, C Magazine, which began as a monthly music flyer merged with an indie newspaper called the Edmonton Bullet. Our story begins when those two papers came together under the direction of one ponytailed music store owner, Ron Garth. You know, when you uh, do a good job and it works out and
1: everybody's, you know, it's good, uh, that's what you're there for. You know, that's what uh, there is in it. Yeah, there's nothing like uh, issue to issue when it would come out and it was, there it was, you know, it's coming off the press. And, uh, and then there's a whole other aspect of distribution and, and getting it out. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I think that's what happened to the record store business. It, it, it morphed into the uh, publishing business, and we learned as we went.
6: Back in the late 80s, Garth was running a music store on White Avenue called Something's Hot and began printing a small monthly magazine called Something's Entertaining Edmonton. That's where the S-E-E for C Magazine would eventually come from. A fellow named Reg Sylvester was running another paper, The Edmonton Bullet, which Ron wanted to connect with his own publication.
4: At the time, there was a robust stream of provincial grants available in Alberta. The era was rich with oil profits and feel-good vibes for Albertan heritage, thanks to the Peter Lougheed government, which ended in 1985. Over that decade, several of Edmonton's most beloved arts organizations began. Brian Paisley formed the Fringe Theater Festival based on Edinburgh's model, which would become North America's largest fringe festival. Joseph Schachter was the director of the Citadel. Today, the main stage in that building bears his name and hosts shows that are on their way to Broadway. It was also during that decade that a plucky group of graduates from the University of Alberta called themselves the Free Will Players and formed Edmonton's Outdoor Shakespeare Festival, settling into the brand new, at the time, 1100-seat amphitheater in Edmonton's River Valley. With emerging grant models supporting career-minded artists, these organizations could afford year-round operations and also regular investment in local advertising.
1: I guess in the late 80s, uh, there was a lot of funding going on through the 80s for the arts in general. And uh, uh, the bullet, you know, you're making a, a fairly... Uh, Reasonable effort to be self-sustaining, and they did what they could to sell advertising, but not many people really like to sell advertising very much. And it's easier to write for a grant. I write up a grant, and, uh, and I think that uh, the book was great. They did a lot of good work for years with that uh, and uh, that. But then the grants started to really seriously dry up, and so uh, the bullet was out there, and uh, I was working with you know on C, and. Uh, and it just became harder and harder to get money for grants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Raj, Sylvester, and Sandra, and a whole bunch of really good people who were working for the bullet. And, uh, and we just uh, realized that uh, we, we were uh, we had, uh, probably a little better business model.
4: As the grant streams began to dry up for the community, merging the two entertainment-focused publications seemed like a way to ensure their continued coverage of the scene. That merger also altered the publication schedule. They increased from monthly to biweekly and eventually to weekly distribution. Back in the late 80s, the alt-weekly, which is shorthand for alternative weekly newspaper or sometimes the urban weekly, was still emerging as a media model in Canada. If you're from a town of pretty much any size in North America, chances are you've come across one of these so-called alt-weeklies. These are free magazines distributed widely throughout cities in sidewalk boxes and racks inside bars or other venues, usually with a new issue each Thursday. That distribution made it easy for readers to plan their weekends based on comprehensive event listings and expansive reporting on community happenings.
6: The beginnings of the alt-weeklies are generally traced back to the Village Voice in New York City, which was founded in 1955. In Canada, the Georgia Strait began in Vancouver in 1967. And by the 90s, most major cities in North America had an alt paper with its own voice, opinions, and views on the city it was in. The weeklies offered artist profiles, previews and reviews of music and shows, columns on offbeat interests, and reporting on topics that weren't covered in mainstream local media. The weeklies contained sex advice columns, crude cartoons, skewering film reviews, and sometimes award-winning reporting on underserved issues. The magazines were popular with many demographics because of the range of coverage, and really because they were free and available pretty much everywhere. Existing publishers, people with money and
2: resources, were starting to take notice. I would travel throughout Canada and into the U.S., and see what was going on in, in other cities. This is Duff Jameson,
6: CEO of Great West Newspapers, who took an early interest in the alt-weekly format. While traveling to newspaper conferences across North America, he found himself picking up the existing alts while looking for what to do in the cities he was visiting. At the time, Jameson oversaw his family-owned Gazette Press, located in St. Albert, which is a short drive north of
2: Edmonton. And I had looked at at uh, the granddaddy in, of alt-weeklies in Canada was the Georgia Strait out in Vancouver, so I'd been quite familiar with that. And Whenever I was in Vancouver, I would pick it up and look at it. Or if I was in Toronto, I would look at uh, Now Magazine, and then the Toronto Star came out with their iWeekly, and I would look to see what they were doing and find things to do. This was, at the time, the prime function of an alt-weekly to convey the
6: happenings of a city through event listings. Jameson was an appreciator of that
2: information. I was kind of the, the, uh, the ringleader when it came to, well, what are we gonna do after our meetings tonight? And I'd say, I found a great blues club. Let's you know, let's, <laughs> let's go down there tonight, right? And I always found that information in the listings of, of the alt-weeklers. And I traveled into the US, most of the major centers had, a, had an alt-weekly. And because I'm in the publishing business, I'm thinking, that's, uh, that's something that could probably work here.
6: Once The Bullet and Somethings Entertaining Edmonton joined to become C Magazine, it soon after came to be printed by Jameson's Gazette Press, which published numerous weekly newspapers across Alberta. We'll note here that in 1995, Great West Newspapers was formed in the joining of Southam Incorporated and Jameson Newspapers. As a fan of the Urban Weekly model, Jameson saw the potential in
2: both The Bullet and C. You know, at, at that time... Um, Reg Sylvester would have been running the Edmonton Bullet. Um and he was kind of a one-man operation, mostly with some freelancers. And I think he was—he was, uh, he was um, you know, working hard and struggling to to kind of make ends meet. He wasn't; Reg was more of an editorial type, less of a sales and marketing type. And of course, <laughs> the lifeblood of those things is selling the advertising. That that's what makes them. Anyway, uh, Ron had come to us to get some printing quotes for his magazine, and um, so we started printing this uh, magazine format for a while, and I said to Ron, you know, maybe this would make a good alt-weekly.
5: Right,
2: yeah. Not. not what you're doing exactly right now you're you're pretty focused on music which is a big part of it but it could be broadened and and um, as Ron thought about that I think he realized that that might be uh, a good idea and I mean we spent countless hours talking <laughs> and wandering around in the streets you know and I think Ron had been working in the past at CFRN. He was kind of in the sound area if I remember right and ended okay. up he ended up in the gulf islands doing some some that type similar type of work out there and he'd come back and headed his store going anyway we got going with this um he got going with this idea with my encouragement we'd like
6: to pause for a moment as writers who worked for both magazines this image was a pretty fucked up thing to imagine for context just a few years later these two men would be divided by a printing bill That divide would grow into a decades-long feud of litigation, resentment, and us-or-them sentiments for writers and advertisers alike, all of which was playing out in and around the pages of two mass-distributed community newspapers, and was a legendary rivalry by the time we emerged on the scene. So the image of these future rivals strolling the suburbs, planning their paper to be, is a hard thing to picture. Back to Ron. uh...
1: You know, they were in the newspaper business. They saw how effective the Strait was and now was, and that Calgary didn't have uh, an urban weekly, and Edmonton didn't have a, a weekly, and this looked like an urban weekly. So that was uh, something they were, uh, no doubt, interested in. If you're a printer, of course, you're interested in that, and um, and so that's uh, there was an interest in what we were doing, and we were, you know. They were of interest to us because they were printing it, mm-hmm. and we needed a printer, and so uh, it became sort of convoluted, I guess, uh, because we'd done a ton of work, and uh, and they had, uh, yeah, they were interested in publications in Edmonton and Calgary, two urban weeklies, obviously, that uh, um, two uh, larger cities that had lots of art stuff going on, especially Edmonton. Mm-hmm. I so, it was uh, that's that's how we got to uh, 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 arrived there. It was uh, I guess we had mutual interest in uh, in urban weeklies. They knew all about the street and now and everything in between. So, uh, uh, and they they had a particular interest in what we were doing.
4: C's first issue came out in July, nineteen ninety two. By 1994, the printing bill had started to become an issue, especially for Jameson.
2: Um But he wasn't—he wasn't really able to keep up with his print bill, and yeah. which kept growing and growing. And we, well, what are we going to do about that, Ron? And, it's just that you know you can't—you uh, can't always uh, uh,
1: dip into an endless supply of uh, cash when you're when you're taking something on that cost costs more money than than you could possibly afford or even
2: imagine. And um, because it it became kind of a very large print bill.
4: As C's print bill grew steep, around the $240,000 mark, so grew the gulf between Garth and Jameson. Jameson thought a plan was being made to handle that debt through a mutually agreed upon handoff of ownership. On September 2, 1995, Jameson faxed a letter to Garth that proposed a plan to manage the printing debt. C would go into voluntary receivership, Great West would give Garth a job, and the increasing debts, Jameson thought, would end there. This is the voice of our co-producer Andrew Paul reading Jameson's letter to Garth, which we obtained through court records. A couple quick notes on the content of the letter. GPL refers to Gazette Press Limited, and there is mention of two people named Maureen and Bob, and we'll get to who they are in a moment.
5: Dear Ron, I realize we have a fundamental difference in how we view the present financial state of your company. From my perspective, the company is bankrupt. Even if a gross value of some sort was attached to it, by the time the liabilities were deducted, you would be less than zero. I can appreciate the growth you've realized over the past few years, but at the same time, yours wouldn't be the first enterprise to fail because it was chronically undercapitalized. And that is the situation which faces both of us today. Having said that, I am eager to not only be fair, but to be seen as fair. With that in mind, here is what I am prepared to do. 1. You will be given a two-week window until Friday, September 15th at 5pm to settle your account with GPL to my satisfaction, i.e. existing terms of 80% credit for receivables under 90 days will remain in force. 2. During that period, you will not incur any further debt with GPL. In other words, the bill for this week's paper will be paid before next week's paper goes to press. The same would apply for the following week three failing settlement of the account you will agree by monday september 18th at 10 a.m to submit to voluntary bankruptcy four should you agree to voluntary bankruptcy you will be offered an employment contract the terms of which will be determined at that time five in the event of voluntary bankruptcy i will do my best to protect maureen from the exposure she and bob would otherwise face run I am confident that I am being both flexible and reasonable, and this is as far as I can extend GPL's exposure with his account. Please convey your acceptance of these terms by signing where indicated and returning to me by 6 p.m. today. Yours sincerely, Duff Jameson, Gazette Press Limited.
4: The Maureen and Bob mentioned are Maureen Fleming and her husband Bob McCammon. The latter was the assistant coach of the Edmonton Oilers at the time. Fleming was the associate publisher at Sea and a longtime friend of Garth's who had come on board to help manage the printing debt. So, Garth signed the letter, seemingly agreeing to the terms laid out therein. Back to Jameson.
2: Anyway, so Fast Forward was being launched at about the same time as all of this was, this print debt and what I was coming to a head here in Edmonton with, with, uh, with Rod and Sea Magazine.
4: Great West newspapers would go on to found Fast Forward magazine, an all-weekly for Calgary, in December 1995.
2: And um, I thought that we had made an arrangement, this was all going to work fine, and, and um, Ron would, would uh, essentially put the business into a, what was what is known as a voluntary receivership, and then the main creditor, which would be us, would, would step in, and, and we'd go from there and carry on. Ron would, would continue on in his role. Um, but somewhere there was, uh, I guess, a disconnect.
4: There was. Garth had a very different plan for moving forward, which involved starting his own magazine by using all of the personnel and resources that had up until then been powering Sea Magazine. Even before the two-week deadline that Jameson proposed had elapsed, Garth and the Sea staff up and moved out of their office. The first issue of View Weekly dropped on September 21st, 1995 which came as something of a surprise for Jameson.
2: I don't know what it was, but but as we got to that point, um, Ron decided he didn't want to do that and, and left and started View Weekly. He took the staff and all of the files and everything, and we were left with this sort of empty room.
4: The lore of what happened is that Ron Garth and the staff gutted the C office overnight and used the advertising contacts and existing C-Racks to put out the first issue of View from an ad hoc office in the production manager's basement mere days later. It's the stuff of local legend, especially among people who worked at either magazine over the next 20 years. For those at View, it was a defining moment of rebellion and independence that would color the paper's focus and trajectory for years to come. And like any good legend, the details vary depending on who you ask.
3: I had kind of an idea. I don't think I, I got the full depth of it. I definitely, I only ever heard the, the version that my publisher told me.
4: Scott Lingley was an editor at Sea in the early years after the split and served as its longtime restaurant reviewer. Around town, he was also a drummer for the band Old Reliable
3: so i don't know what offenses were committed on the on the great west or gazette press limited side but i understood that basically the c magazine was started by the publisher of view and then he walked out on a printing tab and c took it over and ran it out of spite basically they were keeping c alive to draw advertising dollars away from this newly formed competitor
7: paper view weekly uh, because I was already, I was kind of all in from the first time I met Ron. Where, you know, he was a great guy, and I I still call him a great friend to this day.
4: Eden Monroe was View's music editor for almost a decade, ending his tenure in 2014.
7: I love when I see him, uh, and he told me the story between the two, and it was like, no man, I'm. I'm all in, like I'm on your side, and this is, this is where I'm at. Mm-hmm. So even when I was a writer, I did still pick up C. Uh, it, a lot of times it was it was to look at the difference between the two, right? Um, even when I was not editing. Once I was editing the paper, then it just became like a weekly thing where we sat down. It was like, now we do this all together. Um, I'm, I'm reading it, doing exactly what I did saying like, oh, how come, how come they got this interview and we didn't get this interview mm-hmm. or, you know, here, look, we both got the same interview and, you know, I like this one better than that one, uh, reading their paper and, and being like, who's, who are the writers here? Who's, who are the good writers? You know, mm-hmm. who, who would we rather have, you know, if. If the opportunity came up, well,
1: I'd get the story of like this bitter rivalry of, of how the, the publisher of View had this intense hatred for C.
4: Zoltan Varadi was a longtime writer for C and photographer in Calgary. He actually shot the very first cover of Fast Forward, Calgary's All Weekly, published by Great West. He now works in the media department at the Glenbow Museum in Calgary. I don't know, I never talked to the
1: man, so I don't know how much of any of this is true, but this the stories I received, um, that at one point he was actually the person who started C, and then he was bought out, but not willingly or something. I was never entirely clear on the circumstances of what went down, but I knew there was some bad blood there.
0: So I've heard that from C's perspective, they didn't think that there was a rivalry. <laughs> but, uh, but from our perspective, the rivalry was was like the only thing we cared about.
4: Brian Bertels filled a number of roles at VIEW over the years. When we talked to him for this series, he was in law school at York University.
0: You know, our boss, our leader, had had his first paper taken from him, um, you know, by by a combination of the bank and by a combination of, of uh, a media baron out in St. Albert. And... Uh, and they had they had wrested control in some sort of legal maneuver from him and there was a there was some sort of a midnight move that created view and Mm -hmm. we were we were soldiers in that ongoing um
8: battle
2: the reaction to to uh to view popping up uh i guess was um Probably the best word is dismay. <laughs> sort of somewhere between surprise and shock.
6: This is Gord Nielsen, who was the chief financial officer at Great West and would become the publisher of C Magazine from 1999 until 2007.
2: I wouldn't have imagined that happening at the time, but I guess in in retrospect, not soon after, it wasn't really that that surprising. <laughs>
6: Gene Kazuin was the production manager for C at the time of the split. It was his basement that Garth and the editors moved into to produce View, the new magazine. As, I know a lot less than what people suspect because just handling the editorial end of things
0: was a job in itself. So I wasn't even aware of stuff until maybe two or three weeks before it happened. He showed me a letter that came from, uh, from Duff. What was his last name? Jameson. Right? Duff Jameson, that's right, yeah. That they were going to come in. They were bringing their own people in, and they was going to continue. And basically, we're gone. Okay. And he had a particular date, which was late September. I don't remember the exact date that it was happening, because we, some of us, were thinking, "Well, if they came in, they'll leave the core staff alone because we know how to run this thing." Right. Which was their, which was a huge mistake on their part, I might add. Because yeah. the first wave of people that came in didn't know a damn thing about how to run it, mm-hmm. and while they had a greater presence because they could throw more money at it, I still think our writing was connecting with people a lot more because we knew that we knew that stuff, we knew the whole scene. So when you moved offices,
5: um, what what did you uh, take with you? Was there freelancers uh, I imagine you brought a bunch of people with you we um, brought as
0: many as we could mm-hmm. um, there were a few who were reticent about that sure. um, which actually uh, led to some very very ruptured friendships some of which continue to this day right <clears throat> um, all the resources we managed to do um, computers not so much although I scrubbed them myself I just remembered my DOS language and went in there and just totally scrubbed them. So there was nothing that they could retrieve from those computers once they got in there. Right, right. So that meant they had to create their whole magazine from scratch Mm -hmm. because the templates were destroyed the whole bit.
6: Stephen Sandor was also working at C as a writer and copy editor at the time of the split and also moved over to the basement office with Garth.
8: It was was more abrupt, I think, for me. I think he had heard rumors and such, but I think it was more as in the, oh, what do you mean we're putting the next issue out in Jean's, out of Jean's basement. And we're not doing this at the office. It was like, what? what, What's going on? And, well, we're actually not C anymore. We're going to be something new. And it's like, so just go to Jean's house and do what you do. I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, it's like, it was... Uh, uh, um, so, if for me, it wasn't so much about any sort of politics or anything going on in terms of the magazines or even so, it was just the okay Uh, we're going there now and that office was like bare like I mean it was picked clean um the old one and the 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 shotgun move to the new one which was Jean's basement Mm. and I how how long were there a month two months um
0: it seems like almost a month um Probably felt but, like but a it was, year. Yeah, it felt like a year, but, but it was less than two weeks before we got the first issue out.
4: And yeah. that first issue was a nightmare to do. And there was the injunction against it, right? The Monday following View's first issue, four days later, The appointed receiver of C Magazine filed a claim against Ron Garth and View Weekly for damages in the amount of $400,000, claiming that Garth, quote, published a magazine called View Weekly with layout, type font, editorial content, column headings, distribution network, writers and advertisers that were substantially similar and in many instances identical to those utilized by C Magazine. The statement of claim noted that View was distributed in distribution racks owned by C without its consent or knowledge, and claimed that the defendants, being Garth and View and Fleming, have deliberately attempted to pass off the publication of View magazine as being associated or affiliated with C magazine to obtain the benefit of the reputation and goodwill of C magazine. They also state that the defendant's conduct is calculated to or is likely due to deceive the public so as to confuse View Weekly with C magazine. In later records, there is evidence submitted that shows faxes to advertisers from sales staff saying that View Weekly is formerly C Magazine and View is a new name for an old friend. Again, this is the voice of Andrew Paul reading one of those faxes.
5: To the Brian Mitchell campaign from View Magazine. Date September 21st. View Magazine is a new name for an old friend, C Magazine. Attached, please find rates and distribution information. We have talked with several candidates who have asked us, so we thought we'd provide some information to you. Deadline for VIEW is 4 p.m. Fridays, with copy camera ready for 3 p.m. Monday. I would like to talk with you about our exciting changes. VIEW is now on the streets.
4: We found many faxes, some of them handwritten as we worked our way through court records for this series, which was kind of charming, but also reminded us this was 1995. Email hadn't exactly caught on yet. Anyway, so Jameson and Great West worked to keep Sea afloat, and View kept right on trucking, even through a court ordered injunction.
6: For Garth, having his staff stick with him in the new magazine was a vindicating feeling.
1: That was pretty gratifying because there wasn't uh, uh, there was a there was a meeting and everything, but there wasn't a, there were no speeches and the courts too. And we don't want to get into that because we we were in court initially, and uh, and they saw it as. Uh, yeah, they went after it and tried to get us off the street legally with the court, and they just threw it out. They saw it for what it was, and uh, that was pretty gratifying. But, but again, who cares? That's dry court stuff, you know.
4: There is a lot more to this dry court stuff, as Garth calls it, and it goes on for years. We will include notes and evidence along the way in this series as it pertains to the story. For now, suffice it to say that the split was not amicable. Yeah, well, that was a
1: that was a. That was messy, mm-hmm. uh, and I can, but I do. I don't want to. Like I say, I, there there are no good guys and bad guys here. If anything, I was uh, one of the bad guys and one of the good guys too, uh, because we'd been years building it up, and uh, uh, when it Bush came to shove, mm-hmm. we both had versions of the story, but uh, uh, they wanted it, and uh, and uh, we wanted it, and so. Uh, we both got it. You know, by one means or another. And it, uh, it wasn't. Oh yeah, the bastard. You know, oh, sons of bitches. It was, it was. It was like that's the way it works. You know, that's uh, human nature. It's the publishing business. It's what it is. That's that's the way it goes.
6: As the weeks rolled on, View continued production in the basement, which had quickly proved itself to be a less than ideal office environment.
0: It was. It was a bunker. Is very tiny. It was cramped. It was a, a rumpus room that was maybe who knows twenty feet long and about ten feet deep. If you uh, moved your elbow, you'd probably hit the production guy in the head. It was that cramped. Um, we also had two cats. There was a litter box, you know, <laughs> by the furnace next room, and we had, we had a guy named Terry. Uh, God. Uh, Terry Cox, who is one of our production guys, and, uh, and a reviewer who went by the pseudonym T.C. Shaw, he says, says, yeah, it's always great to come in here and work in a place that smells like a cat's butt.
6: It's telling that Garth's newfound View Weekly branded itself as 100% independent. That was a quiet shot at C.'s more corporate ownership, which dovetailed with the era the paper was emerging in. The 90s was a time of authenticity, of indie legends versus corporate sellouts, of Gen X rebellion against bland office culture capitalism. The division between indie and corporate then was pronounced and profound, and View Weekly was firmly positioning itself on the former side and was looking to land with impact. The fledgling paper had a rival to best and something to prove.
1: You know, I talked to people in groups and whatnot, and, and everybody was there, and everybody felt the same way. And so somehow we managed to uh, put it back on the street. And so, so we, we did uh, uh, become really independent
4: and became really poor. And that was how C Magazine and View Weekly began their decades-long rivalry. The papers were covering Edmonton over a period when the city doubled in population, from 500,000 to a million people. Oil prices rose and crashed and rose and crashed in a province that succeeds and suffers along with that industry. Maybe you've never heard of Edmonton. Most people know it as either the place where Gretzky won a few Stanley Cups or the one with the very big mall. During the weekly's tenure, the city's once great hockey team, the Edmonton Oilers, lost its former glory and yet was somehow rewarded with a half billion dollar new arena. Meanwhile, the career-long trajectory of local artists could be traced within the Weekly's pages, from indie productions to the biggest stages. The creative scene in Edmonton birthed many greats, including bands like The Smalls and Junior Gone Wild, the video game company BioWare, actor Nathan Fillion, the second largest fringe festival in the world, and the Weeklies were there to write about them all. There was robust coverage of news, arts, food, culture, and politics. And internally, countless journalists and writers were given their first paid bylines. Before we go into the rest of this series, we have some disclosures to make about who we are and how we came to tell this story. I'm Paul. I'm Fonda.
6: I'm Andrew. We all worked at one or both of these papers between 2006 and 2016. As freelancers and editors, our early adult lives were spent in the Alt Weekly grind, its fun and sometimes reckless lifestyle, its personal and professional challenges, and its meager wages. We got to know both magazine's distinctive casts of characters, many of whom talked to us for this series, and some of whom are no longer with us.
4: I started at C in 2006 as the snarky receptionist and eventually took over editorial of Listings, City Life, and Music uh, until 2009. And then I was fired. At that point, I crossed over and wrote for VIEW until 2017. You
6: wrote for me. Uh, I was the arts and film editor at VIEW Weekly from 2009 until I left the paper in 2016. I shared a desk with Fonda at C as an intern in 2008.
5: Afterwards, they let me stick around to edit the listings before hiring me as a staff writer. And I ended my tenure at the paper in 2010 as its entertainment editor. The three of us met in 2009, and we started podcasting together in 2013. We wanted to tell this story because both magazines were part of our lives at a very formative time. But this is more than just nostalgia. As alt-weeklies begin to disappear from the media landscape of North America, the living history they represent is going with them. The websites of both View and See are completely gone. So there's very little evidence of what went on, and as Ron Garth might say, we should probably keep trying to tell that story. This is our bittersweet elegy for the regs, and our love letter to the column inches where we got to play and grow
0: next time on a tale of two weeklies you know we had hookers yelling at us go take my picture and they turn their head whatever it was a newspaper war good
8: old-fashioned knock-down <laughs> drag-out newspaper <laughs> war and I was just trying to see if nonviolent aggression worked and when he finally took a swing at me at about three in the morning I went I win I win I win what made it easier for me was uh
0: the really crappy crew of people that was writing for C.
4: A Tale of Two Weeklies is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Music is by Luke Thompson. Our work is by Michael Nunweiler. This series was made possible with project support from the Edmonton Heritage Council. Special thanks to Edmonton Community Foundation for use of their recording studio.